13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man, The Lives of Harry Lyons. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyons. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. For those of you who know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives, and I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe. Hello there, this is Diamond. You know this business I'm in can get pretty silly sometimes. I can go along for a whole month and get by on nothing but meals at the automat and a dozen laughs a day. The funny ones usually pay just as well as the tough ones, but eventually somebody starts something that's about as funny as an open grave. Hey everyone, <laughs> this is OTR Rob welcoming you. Have you ever started out your day and it seemed like it was going to go well and then somewhere later it just, you realize that it's gone south and you can't get it back. That's how I feel today. <laughs> anyway, hey everyone, this is OTR Rob welcoming you to another edition of Richard Diamond, Private Detective. I, thought, I forgot where I was. <laughs> this episode is from January 7th, 1950. The episode is entitled Butcher's Protection Racket. And after that, I have The Lives of Harry Lyme from October 5th, 1948. The episode is entitled Operation Music Box. And then we have my favorite, The Saint, starring Vincent Price from February 25th, 1951. The episode, it kind of sounds like an episode of Dragnet, because all of the Dragnet episodes start out with the big something or other. And this episode of The Saint starts out as the big swindle. And I have an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from 1948. And it's from October 10th. And that's called the Panama Hat. I used to own a Panama Hat. In fact, it 
belonged to my father-in-law, and he gave it to me. And it's an original Panama hat. I asked him when he got it from him. He says, all you have to do is look at the box, son. And the box said that he bought the hat in 1937. So even the box told me how old this hat was. And it was in great shape. And I wish I still had the hat. It got stolen at a party I was at, a masquerade party, where I was wearing the hat. And can't get it back no matter what. I wish I had that original hat. It was perfect. Anyway, and after that, it's box 13 from, again, October 10th, 1948. The episode is entitled Double Mothers. That almost sounds like a dirty joke. And it could very well be in this case. But enjoy all of these shows. And I'll see you all back here next week, God willing, and the creeks don't rise. Portions of the following program are transcribed. Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Yep, door's open. Mr. Diamond. Well, Angelino, come in. I didn't know whether you were busy or not. If you didn't hear the drums, you'd know I'm not busy. Drums, Mr. Diamond? It's sort of a ritual, Angie. Every time I get a paying client, my landlord offers up his thanks to the goddess of joy. Plays an old bongo and turns on the heat as a kind of sacrifice. I see. Oh, no, no, you don't. You're too normal. What's the trouble, Angelino? The pig's knuckles in your butcher shop got arthritis? <laughs> you always with the kidding, Mr. Diamond. Yeah, that's the kind of a hairpin I am. Hairpin? Uh, Angie, you got something on your mind. Forget my little asides and let's have it. Uh, I got the big problem, Mr. Diamond. Oh, you mean something's wrong and you can't pay me to take care of it? Oh, no, no, I can pay. Oh, well, then you haven't got a problem. You slip me the cash and I'll move in on your worries. Well, you see, it's like this. I come to you as a sort of representative for all the other butcher shops, the independent ones. I ain't the only one that's worried. So all the butchers got together last night and decided to do something about it. I, uh, I hate to be uh, a nag, but do something about what? We've all been paying money to a protective association. Oh, yeah, every week a couple of guys come around and collect. If we don't pay, we get our shops busted up. And if that ain't enough, we get our heads busted too. See, I still got three stitches right here on the top of my head. Oh, nice job. What the doctor use, a loom? I got this last week when those two guys come for the money. I couldn't pay, so one of them hit me with a blackjack. You're lucky you didn't use one of your salamis. Might have been a job for homicide. He knocked me out when I, when I come to... My shop was a mess. There was a note saying that they'd be back. Well, you better go to the law, Angelino. They'll give you good protection and won't cost you a thing. We discussed that at the meeting. But we decided it was too dangerous. We've been warned that if we go to the police, we'll get hurt bad. We got the families, Mr. Diamond. We can't take the chance. Yeah. Uh, tell me, have these two Garnifs been back to see you? Garnifs? Oh, Angie, you're going to be a lot of trouble. Garnifs? Hoods? What's... Gangsters, bad little boys. Oh, no, they ain't been back. Not yet. Well, for you or Rockefeller, my fee's the same, Angelino. One hundred clams uh, of dollars a day in expenses. We took up a collection. 
I uh, only got a hundred dollars. Oh. Why does this always happen to me? I'm going to end up making Simon Legree look like Snow White. You only got a hundred. Huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. but we thought of something. If it costs more, you can take it out in trade at any of the butcher shops. Well, it's liable to run into a lot of ham hocks. <laughs> it's the only way we can pay you. So I'll throw a barbecue. Let's go, Angelino. Where do we go? Well, you and the rest of the butchers have not only hired yourselves a private detective, but you've got a new addition in the butcher's union. You mean you... Yeah. Come on. I want you to show me how to carve a lox. Well, that's what happens when your reputation gets around to the butcher shops. I'd been buying cold cuts from Giuseppe Angelino for the past two years and telling him what a great detective I was. I should have known he'd never take my word for it, so now I had to prove it. His shop was over on 10th Avenue, so we walked over and went in. He took me around behind the counter and handed me a white apron. I don't get it. Why you want to be a butcher? Well, Angie, you want me to get a line on these two guys who do the collecting, don't you? Sure. Well, I can only think of two ways I could watch them and not look suspicious. Make like a butcher or crawl in with the ground round. Huh? Think what would happen if someone looked down for the price of ground round and caught it staring back at them. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a good one. That's pretty good. Oh, now, come on, <laughs> Angie. It wasn't that funny. Oh, you got my hundred bucks, ain't you? It's a riot. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, come on. Let's... Uh, Show me what happens with this butcher racket. Oh, customer. I'll show you later. Nothing like learning fast. Let me handle the sale. Think you can? Yes, he comes. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Hennessy. Oh, good morning, Mr. Angelino. Business must be good. I see you have a new butcher. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, This is a Mr. Uh, Hangtooth. Hangtooth? Hangtooth? Uh, Good morning, Mrs. Hennessy. Something I can do for you? Oh. Uh, Yes. How much is the lamb shoulder today? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, which one? What? Look, uh, maybe you better let me take... Uh, relax, Angie. I'll make it. Uh, which shoulder would you like, Mrs. Hennessy? Well, is there any difference, young man? Oh, yes, yes. You see, this lamb is really a ram. A ram? Oh, sure, yeah. Hurt his shoulder playing against the eagles two weeks ago. We're also selling his shoulder pads at 21 cents a pound. Mr. Angelino... Uh, you'll find him hanging in the back with the spare ribs. Now, if you can tell me which shoulder you want, I'll wrap it up and send it off tackle between the liver and the knishes. Well, well, I never... Well, of course you haven't. That's the trouble with you people. Now, here's a nice little ram that played his heart out. Oh, by the way, the heart is a special today, 11 cents a pound. Hmm. Angie. Is she gone? Like laundry in a tornado. What for do you want to do that, Mr. Diamond? She was one of my best customers. I wanted to get her out of here, and I wanted to get her out in a hurry. But why do you have to do it like that? Not a lamb, a ram. Which shoulder do you want, Miss Hennessy? Look, Angie, I'm sorry, but you can explain it to her later. Just as she came in, I spotted two guys heading this way. When they saw her, they backed off. They're standing across the street right now. Where? Right over there, in front of the cigar store. Hey, one of them has got a hatchet. Oh, no, not that one. You're looking at the Indian. Over there. Oh, oh, yeah. That's them. That's the two guys who hit me on the head. They're the ones who come around to do the collecting. Well, they're coming again. You better duck. I'll take care of it. You be careful. They're pretty rough monkeys. Go on, I'll beat it. They're almost here. Yeah, yeah. I'll be in the back. One meatball. I got you under my skin. I got... Well, well, well. Good morning, gentlemen. What can I do for you? Where's Angelino? Oh. Well, uh, he's out buying some old buffalo. I'm the new assistant. Buffalo? Red. Shut up. And get your hand out of the pickles. 
right, now tell me, new assistant, when will he be back? Well, that's hard to say. These buffalo are in Wyoming. Oh, yeah. Carl, you know I think this guy's trying to be funny. You win yourself a lamb chop. All you have it, with or without the bloomers. You know something, Red? I think you're right. What's your name, laughing boy? Hangtooth. Hangtooth? Oh, I'm going to have more fun with that. It throws everybody. Well, look, Hangtooth. You know who we are. Uh, how many guesses? You won't even need one. We're in a hurry. We're collectors. Uh, we put all the scraps out in the back in a can. You can't miss it. I don't like you. Well, I have a friend. Maybe we could double date. Look, let's stop the clowning. If Angelina didn't tell you about us, it's going to be too bad for you. We're here for some money. We get it every week. Twenty-five bucks. Yeah. Last week, Angelino didn't have it, so he accidentally hit his head. We figured that all that blood would make him remember it this week. Well, I'm sorry, friend, but Angie didn't say anything about it. Tell me, what does he pay you boys for? Oh, little things. Protection, mostly. You see, if he paid us last week, he wouldn't have hit his head. You know something? I know a big, fat cop who would just love to hear all about this protection Angie's paying you for. You do, huh? Yeah, I do, huh? Well, uh, look, seeing as how you're a new boy around here, maybe we ought to tell you first. Why don't you do that? Let's go on the back. I like it here. I listen better. You do, huh? Is that all you guys can say? Now, get out from behind that counter. Oh, I want to explain the thing to you. Yeah, go on, Red. Explain it to Mr. Hangtooth. Hangtooth! You'll have to pardon him. He don't hear so well. How's your hearing, Hangtooth? Depends on what I'm listening to. If it's dull, I might end up with an ear trumpet. You might end up with one whether it's dull or not. Now, seeing as how you're working for Angelino, you're going to need protection, too. So let's have the 25 bucks. I want to know what I'm buying. Sure. Here. Oh, now, don't you know it is nice to go around breaking up showcases, and especially with that nasty old sap? Well, you never know when things are going to get busted, see? Now, uh, don't you think you need protection, Mr. Hangtooth? Uh, tell you what I'll do. I'll pay you for protection if you'll pay me. Pay you? For what? Well, you never know when things are going to get busted. Like your jaw, maybe. Why, you... Hey, Carl, help me. Yeah, sure I'll help. This looks like my head-breaking day. Got his legs. All right, hold him. I'll tap him good. Give it to him again. Oh, he's a rough one, ain't he? Yeah, kick me in the mouth, will you? Hey, Red, let me try that, huh? Hang to turn such a pretty color when you kick him like that. He's out. You think he gets the idea? Maybe not right now, but when he wakes up, he's going to have a sore head to remind him. Come on, we'll come back for Angelino later. Well, you can't really blame brave little old me for going to sleep at that point. One, I could have handled, but in that cramped space behind the counter with both of them coming from different directions, I had to give up sooner or later. And I did for about 20 minutes. When I finally snapped out of it, I looked up and saw three heads staring down at me. Two herring with Angelino in the middle. You all right, Mr. Diamond? Oh, Angie, do you always ask people that right after they've lost their blood? Here, let <sighs> me help you get up. Oh, oh swell. <laughs> now, uh, look for my eyes, will you? I didn't know what to do. I guess I should have called the police. Uh, why, Angie, you're really beginning to think for a change. 
Oh, let me sit down. Uh, but when I thought about calling the police, I also thought about my family. Those two men might have beat up my family just like this. Yeah, 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 I guess you're right. You take the hundred dollars, Mr. Diamond, and forget about this. It's a too dangerous. When they come back, I'll pay them the money and nobody gets hurt. Look, uh, look, I can understand why you're scared, Angie. Those, those two headhunters are kidding, but you can't let them get away with it. I can, and I will. I need taking no more chances. First, they bust up my shop, then they bust... No, thanks. I've had enough. Okay. Okay, Angie. Here's the hundred. No, no, that's yours. And then say it's a present. Buy yourself some new glass for the counter. What are you going to do? Well, now I got no obligation, Angelino. Just a sore face and a nasty disposition. I won't get back to normal until I find those two guys and tie their necks in a bow. I left Angelino's shop and headed for the 5th Precinct Police Station. I wanted to look up two sure bets for the police gallery. One named Carl, the other Red. Two guys who went around scaring poor little businessmen like Angelino. By the time I reached the station, the aches from the beating were making me very unhappy. And when I walked into the squad room, I spotted something that didn't make things any better. Yeah, what are you... Holy cow, Diamond. Well, Otis, I'm glad you noticed. It means I put myself together all right. What's the matter with your voice? I got a cold. Sound like you swallowed a rattlesnake. Yeah? Well, what happened to you? Oh, don't be silly. I always bleed just before lunch. Yeah, how'd it happen? It wasn't easy. Is the lieutenant in? Sure, go ahead. Thanks. Say, Otis, when are you going to start shaving in the morning? Hi, what's wrong? Your five o'clock shadow is four hours fast. Oh. Hello, Walt. Now you listen to me. Wow. You like it? What hit you? Well, the bruises show up. I come on in Technicolor. Someone sure did a good job. That someone is two guys, one named Red and the other Carl. Red, then Carl. Yeah. I got closest to Red. Name matches the hair, busted nose, about 190, and very nasty with a sap. And Carl? Dark greasy. Well-dressed, if you like the type. Big boy with a scar under his uh, right eye. You sure pick them. You know them? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Here. Here's one of them. Let's see. Yeah, yeah, you are so right. This is sweet little Carl, all right. Carl Tate, sort of a new boy, import from Chicago. Here's the other one. Yeah? Yeah, that's Red. Yeah, they work together, a couple of muscle men. Mm, Red Dillon. Hm. Arrests all over the place. One conviction, assault with a deadly weapon. What they go after you for? Yeah, they've been pulling a protection racket on some of the independent butcher shops. Who do they work for? They used to work for Jack Arnold before he got sent up. Well, I know they're not working this setup alone. It's too big. No, they wouldn't be. Hey, Tiny Easter is in town. Tiny Easter? Oh, used to be Arno's right-hand boy. That's right. Came in about a month ago. I'd love to get something on him. Nobody has ever been able to nail him. Well, it adds up. He used to work for Arno, so did Carl Tate and Red Dillon. If we can't pick him up just because two of his boys worked you over, I'd just say they weren't his boys. I don't want him picked up. I want Carl and Red. If Easter goes along with the deal, you can have him. What are you going to do? Get cleaned up and pay Mr. Tiny Easter a visit. What's his address? Well, he's got an office on East 48th Street, uh, 804. Thanks, Walt. A tiny's a bad boy. Well, I'll take along my 38 just in case I have to spank him. Bye. I left Walt and went back to my office. Took a clean shirt out of the closet and washed up. I locked up again, went down to the street, grabbed a cab. Twenty minutes later, I was standing in the reception room of Tiny Easter's office. 
big guy with a bulge under his arm was trying to be as unreceptive as possible. So you want to see Easter? You got an appointment? No, I haven't got an appointment. Now tell Easter I'm out here. What's your name? You're going to get hung up on this. What do you mean? The name's Hangtooth. Huh? Yeah, you see? Now make like an office boy and tell Easter I got a message for him from Carl and Red. You're a pretty fresh guy, ain't you? Yeah, and I'm going to spoil if I have to stand around much longer. You can spoil rotten for all I care. You ain't going to see Easter. He's busy. Okay. You know, you'll get so excited you'll ruin your stomach someday. I don't think so. You don't, huh? <laughs> I'm collecting scalps. Well, good for you. How'd you get by Lefty? He's tied up with a stomach ache. Swallowed a fist. All right, so you got muscles. Also, you got a pushed-in face. Lefty do that? Carl Tate and his blood brother, Red. Oh? What'd you come to me for? They're working for you, Auntie. You smell like a cop. Name's Hangtooth. I doubt it. Good for you. I'd hate to go through that again. I'm a private cop. Why not good for you? I was in a butcher shop when your two boys wandered in and started playing squash with me. I don't like to get pushed around, Easter. And I don't like your racket. I want Carl and Red. And if I get you along with them, the state will hang a medal on me. <laughs> Looks like you kind of got nothing to lose. Look at it any way you like. Now, what about your two playmates? Well, I don't know what you're talking about, Seamus. I never heard of those two guys. I don't think you understand, Tiny. I'm pretty mad. I'm going to find these two guys, and I'm going to do it even if I have to be unpleasant with you. Why, Mr. Hangtooth, what do you mean by unpleasant? You break a leg, that's unpleasant. Oh? Well, uh, I got something in this drawer might change your mind. Yeah. Oh, my hand. Okay, a busted hand. Unpleasant enough? <laughs> Take your foot away, you... You're breaking it in two. Drop the gun in the drawer. Okay. Now, uh, let me explain it again. If you go out and shoot 12 people tomorrow, I'm going to be sore about it. But when you start intimidating a bunch of hard-working little guys and their families, I go off like a skyrocket. Then when a couple of your cheap gunsels push me around, I explode. Look, friend, I tell you, I don't know these guys. Look, Easter... Please believe me. I don't know. You worked with him in Chicago. I'm telling you the truth, Easter. I'll work you over like an eggplant in a subway. Look, whatever your name is, I got boys. They'll take care of you. Who's going to tell them to do it? I am. With your mouth swollen shut? Now, where do I find Carl and Red? <laughs> Golly, you knocked one of my teeth loose. Then I got 31 to go. I guess you really don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, friend, I understand. Now, now, where are they? You still need some encouragement? No, no. No, that's all right. They're in a warehouse. By the 14th Street docks. What warehouse? Rogers and Sons. Big sign on the top. Mind if I use your phone? Yeah, go ahead. By all means. Don't you know it's not polite to listen, Easter? Well, what do you want me to do? Go to sleep. I'm 
homicide, Lieutenant Levinson. Walt, Rick, I'm up at Easter's. He let you use the phone? Yeah, he's asleep. I'm going down to Roger's warehouse near the 14th Street docks. Carl and Red are down there. May need some help. I'll be right down. You better hop down here to Easter's and pick him up first. On what charge? I'll give you a charge after I see Red and Carl. Now step on it. But, 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 but... Contact. I left Easter's office looking like a second-class rest home and headed for the warehouse on 14th Street. It was getting late in the afternoon when my cab pulled up near the river and I got out. The cold breeze was kicking up little patches of white on the water and a light fog was moving in from the Atlantic as I started toward a big building with a sign on the top that read, Rogers and Sons, importing. The place was boarded up, but a window in the basement showed signs of recent use, so I jimmied it open and dropped down on the dark, cold pavement. I held my breath and listened. There was a radio playing from somewhere in the front of the building, so I started moving toward it. I went up a flight of stairs and onto the first floor. The radio was louder now, and I could make out an office door with a small light shining under the crack at the bottom. I moved up close and listened. Hey, Carl. Yeah? Shut off the radio. Okay. What do we have to hide out in here for? Because Easter said to. Besides, we don't know who that guy was we worked over this morning. He might have been a cop. So he was a cop. We worked cops over before. Look, Easter said we should stay undercover for a few days, so we stay undercover. All right, now deal the cards. Oh. Off that top. Get it? That's probably Easter. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. What? He did, huh? Hey, what's the matter? Boss! What's going on? I don't know. That was Easter. The guy we worked over was in his office, pushed him around, and now that guy's headed down here. Uh, we can handle him. Sure, but something's wrong. Just as Easter was going to say what to do, it sounded like he got into a fight. I had some guy tell him to drop the phone. Hey, the cops. Yeah. Come on, let's get out of here. Yeah. Good afternoon, boys. Hangtooth. Hangtooth. Come back here, Carl. Uh, help me. You shouldn't have pulled a gun, Red. Since when do you butchers carry rods? Since we get pushed around by guys like you. I'm going to go get your friend. You can't leave me. I'm shot bad. I can't take it back. The law will be here in a minute. You're a lousy butcher. I hope Carl pays you good. I'll see he gets a chance to try. lying on his face and ran toward the front of the building. The only way out was that window in the back and Carl was sure to be hiding somewhere in the dark hoping to get around me and head for the basement. There were a dozen places to hide in that warehouse, but I had one advantage. He couldn't see me any better than I could see him. I backed up against the wall. Come on, Carl. Red's hurt pretty bad and the law's on the way. You gotta get me to get out of here. He was behind a pile of packing cases and had a big gun just to make things suffer. I eased along the wall, trying to get behind him when I suddenly bumped into something. I turned around and felt to see what it was. A ladder, straight up to the steel beams overhead. I put my gun under my arm and started up the rungs. It was tough climbing like that, trying not to make a sound and knowing all the time if he spotted me, I was an easy target. About halfway up, I stopped held on with one hand, took off my shoe with the other. The idea was to drop the shoe, draw his fire, and nail him before he found out where I was. I dropped the shoe. 
Okay, only take it easy. I can't see nothing, Lieutenant. You can't say nothing either. Shut up. You sound awful. Oh. Rick. Rick. What? I hear him, Lieutenant. Rick. Huh? Here's some guy that's been shot. Now, Diamond's been around here all right. Rick. Here, Walt. Up here. What? Where the devil are you? Up here on this ladder. There he is, Lieutenant. See where my flash is. Now, what are you doing up there? I had to get Carl Tate. He's over there behind those crates. Now, get me down. Well, why don't you climb down? Walt! Not in front of Otis. Oh, I forgot. Otis, go outside and call the fire department. Fire department? Yes, and tell him to bring a net. What? Will you get a move on? Oh, okay. Rick. Yeah? <laughs> now you stop that! Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's so seldom that I ever get a good laugh at your expense. Okay. But you know this is a serious thing with me. How far up am I? I'd say about 40 feet. Oh. Now, now, take it easy. Just don't look down. Walt. Yeah? Promise me something? I won't tell Otis. I'll say you got stuck up there. Thanks. <laughs> what did you go up there for, anyway? I told you. I had to get Carl Tate. I just didn't think until I was up. Imagine the guy who shoots it out with two of the toughest torpedoes in town having a horrible fear of heights. Boy, if that isn't one for the books. You know, I'll never forget the time that that little blonde trapeze artist got stuck. What? Yeah? I hate you. How's your face? Fine. How's yours? Now you stop that. Oh, nice and soft. Rick. What's the matter? I'm just nuzzling a little. Just nuzzling a lot. You want to nuzzle? You got to sing. Oh, no. No nuzzling? Oh, yeah. No sing, no nuzzle. Fiend. Piker. Just a real nuzzle? I think you're after my earrings. No. If I sing? Yes. I was ready. Let's listen. I will remember you In the silent and lonely night And the memory of your smile Will bring me back the light I will remember you When the leaves lie upon the ground With the memory of a kiss A kiss in summer found When the winds of winter Come crying through the darkness Your lovely voice will come to me even though in spirit across the miles that part us, crying, I love you, I will remember you till the spring of another year. 
Till I hold you close again I will remember you Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm, come here. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, now what? I just remembered. I got a surprise for you. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Got a new television set. Now you can watch the fights. Well, uh, great, great. Where is it? In the den. But first, you've got to do one thing for me. What's that? Well, the reception isn't very good yet. I called the repairman, but he said to check the aerial. He can't come over until tomorrow. I'll fix it. Where is it? On the roof. The roof? But be careful. You've got to climb a ladder to get to it. What's the matter? Look, uh, Helen, wouldn't you rather... Fix the aerial first. First? First. Oh. Whom are you calling? Hello, operator. Give me the fire department. You've just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Helen was played by Virginia Gregg, Lieutenant Levinson by Ed Begley. Also in our cast were Wilms Herbert, Nestor Piva, Paul Fries, and David Ellis. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Richard Diamond is written and directed by Blake Edwards. Portions were transcribed. Dick Powell soon will be seen in the screen version of the best-selling novel, Mrs. Mike. Now, this is Eddie King with an important reminder. Richard Diamond will next be heard on Sundays, one week from tomorrow. Remember, Richard Diamond, starring Dick Powell, will next be heard on Sundays, beginning January 15th. Consult your local paper for time of broadcast. What's on NBC tomorrow? The hilarious Phil Harris, Alice Faye show. And for mystery, Sam Spade, directly following Phil and Alice. Next, Hollywood Star Theater with Dorothy L'Amour on NBC. Orson Welles as The Third Man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man with Zither Music by Anton Karras. shot that killed Harry Lyne. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man, yes, that was the end of Harry Lyne. But it was not the beginning. No. He had many lives. I can tell you about all of them. How? Because my name is Harry Lyne. Kiddies, London, which is the capital of England, 
is noted for a number of curious historical events. King Charles was beheaded in London. They had a fire there and a plague. And it is also the place where Harry Lyme broke three music boxes and founded an orphan asylum. Please don't ever say I'm not a music lover and a philanthropist. Because I'm not. Music Box. Good afternoon, uh, Mr. Dowdley. That's right, madam. I'm interested in a music box. Certainly, madam. We have a number. I'll go and get them. Uh, just a moment, though, Mr. Dowdley. I'm only interested... <laughs> he didn't hear you. I think he must be a little deaf. I guess so. You know, you make me homesick. What do you mean? Don't you know what it is to be homesick? Sure do. I've only been away a few weeks, and I certainly like to be back. But why do I make you homesick? Well, you make me think of Central Park and the Fountain Better Plaza, Fifth Avenue in the morning in May, and the sound of roller skating on the sidewalk downtown, hood of shipping on the East River. Everything, in fact. How do you know I come from New York? <laughs> I just guessed. Here's your ticket, Mr. Lyme. Oh, thank you, Mr. Mr. Entwistle. Here we are, madam. These are all the music boxes we have. These two are 17th century and this one 18th century. This one... That's a delightful tune, isn't it? I should have explained, Mr. Darley. I don't care if the music boxes were made in the 17th, 18th, or 19th century. I don't care when they were made. What I want to know is, when did you buy them? But, madam, surely the value of a music box lies in when it was made, not when it was bought. Not to me, Mr. Darley. I'm only interested to know whether you purchased any music boxes between February and June of last year. We're here to sell antiques, Miss... Uh... Chappick. Uh, Miss Chappick. Not to disclose records of our purchases. Uh, if you'll excuse me butting in. I guess what this lady's trying to say is that she's ready to buy any music boxes you happen to purchase during that period that she's been... I'm not trying to say anything. I'm quite capable of making myself understood. Thank you. Sorry. Do I take it that it is, as Mr. Lyme here suggests? Yes. In that case, we'll see what we can do for you. Uh, what do our records say, Mr. Entwistle? Ah, oh, yes, sir. Let me see. Uh, yes, uh, during the period in question, sir, we, uh, we purchased uh, four music boxes, uh, three of which have since been sold. And the fourth? Uh, it's the one Mr. Dowdley is holding at the moment, madam. May I look at it, Mr. Dowdley? Certainly. 
Got a hammer. A hammer? A hammer? Yes, a hammer. Hey, you're not going to buy this music box just to smash it up, are you? Yes, you might. Well, it's what? all right with me. I've never heard of such a thing. In 50 years' experience of selling antiques, I've never heard of such a thing. Why should you <laughs> care? You can name your own price. Oh, there's a little more to it than that, isn't there, Miss Stantwistle? Certainly, I think so. Miss Chappick, I don't like to see beautiful things willfully destroyed. Huh? I said you could name your own price, Mr. Dudley. Oh, in that case, I must warn you the price will be stiff one. Give Miss Chappick a hammer. What? Very well. Is uh, this a habit of yours, breaking up music boxes? You don't know how many I've broken up in the last week. Well, here comes your hammer. Here you are, Miss Chappick. Thank you. <laughs> no good. And that little act of wanton destruction, Miss Chappick, will cost you exactly 35 pounds. It's okay, Mr. Dowdley, but I'd like you to do one thing more for me, if you will. I'd like you to let me have the names and addresses of the people who bought those other uh, three uh, music boxes. I'll, I'll pay a stiff price for that, too. Taxi. Don't bother. Minute, I thought he was going to refuse to give you those addresses. Well, he didn't, did taxi. he? Taxi? Oh, he's trying that when the flag's down. I know. He's waiting for me. Well, in that case, you can give me a lift. I don't suppose for a minute we're going in the same direction. That's just where you're wrong. And that's how I met Myrna Chapik. My interest in this girl was twofold. First of all, she definitely started where the petty girls left off. And secondly... There's this little matter of the music boxes. My left little toe was twitching. Could have been the damp weather, of course, but with me it's usually a sign that money is in the air. Anyway, an hour later we were on our fourth martini, and Myrna was beginning to unbend. Now, come on, Myrna. What is all this? What's the idea of busting up all those music boxes? Have you heard of Jan Chapik? You mean the Czechoslovakian guy, the politician? Yeah. What's he got to do with it? The day before he died, he wrote me a letter from London. Hand me my purse, will you? Yeah, here you are. Here, you can read it. My dear Myrna, you will not know me except perhaps from seeing my picture in the paper many years ago, but then that is not surprising, because I only know you from seeing yours. The other day I happened to see in an old issue of the American magazine Esquire a colored photograph of Myrna Chappick. I couldn't help remarking the resemblance to your mother, my sister who left for America some 25 years ago. Had you ever heard of this guy? Did your mother ever mention him? No, not that I remember. Well, how come he took your mother's name, not your father's? My father's name was Chappick. He was a coal miner in Pennsylvania. It's a funny thing, your mother marrying a man of the same name, wasn't it? Well, as a matter of fact, it wasn't. She was an Italian. And the man who wrote this letter wasn't your uncle? No, he couldn't have been it. You know I'm talking too much. I don't know whether it's you or the Martinis. It's both. Well... Go ahead, read the rest of it. Okay, now, my dear niece, this is a painful task which I have before me, but really there is no possible choice. You must know that when the communists seized control in my country, a price was put on my head and I only managed to escape at the very last moment by concealing myself in the tail of an American airliner which was leaving Prague that night. Like many others in Europe in those terrible last years, I managed only to take away with me the meagerest of possessions. A small traveling case light enough for me to to carry, for I was ailing and feeble even then. 
I have said that the purpose of this letter is a painful one, but perhaps you will not find it so, because after all you do not know me, and surely will not receive the news of my death with any sorrow. But the fact is that I will be gone by the time you read these words, which are not intended so much for a farewell. People who don't know each other can't very well say goodbye, can they? But as a last will and testament... I am leaving you the contents of my little suitcase, Myrna, a few shirts, a necktie, and the unfinished manuscript of my last book. These you will not find very exciting, I'm afraid, and I can't imagine you're traveling across the ocean to claim such an inheritance. But there is a music box, Myrna. It's the only thing of value I could take away with me on my flight. I want you to have it, and I give you my word that it will be worth your trouble to come after it. The landlady, who is not a sympathetic woman, has... Not been entrusted with a secret, and unluckily she has not been paid for the rent of this attic room for several weeks. By the time you come to London, she will have sold it, and you must find out where and to whom, and you must buy it back. And now my hand is very tired, and I cannot go on pushing this pen across the paper for many more words. I send my blessing to the child of my sister, who has inherited her wonderful green eyes, and also something else almost as wonderful... And almost as green. Your Uncle Yan. Huh. Almost as wonderful, almost as green. That, that could be emeralds. I'm sure that's what it is. And you think the emeralds are concealed in the music box? In a false bottom? I don't think it. I know it. And I'm going to get those emeralds if I have to break up every music box in London. <laughs> evening. I also had something else. I had that list from Dowdley's antique shop. Oh, yes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I pinched it out of her purse. And you're right. Well, I did. Somewhere in London, there were three music boxes, and one of those three was a fortune in emeralds, and I've always been a great believer in the old adage, finders, keepers. Yes, if anybody was going to break up any music boxes, it was going to be me. <laughs> Is Miss Moira Corkbottle at home? No, she's out. Well, have you any idea where she's gone? Oh, I wouldn't like to say for sure, but well, you could try the Velvet Penguin. All right, the, the Velvet, uh, the what? Uh, it's a nightclub. Velvet Penguin, but a uh, nightclub, this is ten o'clock in the morning. Well, if she's anywhere, that's where she'll be. <laughs> Orson Welles returns in just a moment as the third man. Third man, 
continues with today's story, Operation Music Box. Like all nightclubs, the Velvet Penguin looked more than ordinarily squalid at 10.30 in the morning. Most of the chairs were piled up onto the tables, and by the glare of a work light, an unhappy-looking character in shirt sleeves was pounding the piano. A girl was singing. Three or four other girls were waiting their turn, while a committee of fat, sleek gentlemen sat in judgment. Okay, honey, that'll be enough. We get the idea. Yeah, what's your name again? Myra Corkbuckle. Yeah, we'll let you know if anything turns up. Don't call us, we'll call you. Next. Uh, pardon me, Miss Corkbottle. Yes? My name is Lyme. I'd like to talk to you for a minute, if you don't mind. What's it about, a job? Well, no, it's... I'm not interested. I've just about as much of this audition racket as I can take. I'm fed up with the whole cabaret game. Just as soon go back to singing in front of a band, even in the smalls. Sorry, I just wanted to ask you about that music box you bought at Dowdley's last February. You were a detective? Not exactly. You did buy one, though, didn't you? Yes, I did, but it didn't do me any good. What do you mean, it didn't do you any good? I thought it would soften him up. Soften who, Miss Corkbottle? My uncle, of course. My uncle, Ben Corkbottle. You know, General Corkbottle. No, I don't know. You mean you never heard of General Corkbottle? No, I never did. Well, you haven't missed anything. He's an old skinflint and he hates women, even nieces who send him nice antique boxes filled with his favorite Turkish cigarettes on the occasion of his 101st birthday. Is he really that old? Oh, of course not, but he acts that way. He has the box. Yes, when last heard from, he had the box. I wish he had the measles. Would you like to be a good kid and give me his address? Yes, all right. Give me a bit of paper and pencil and I'll write it down for you. Here you are, I'll write it on this. Okay. Now, look, if you see him, tell him I'm starving to death, which is true, that I speak of him constantly, which is also true, and that if he can see his way clear to sending me a hundred pounds or even a fiver, but no, he won't. (laughs) I know him. Well, good luck with the general, Mr. Lyme, and don't forget to wear your bulletproof vest. I'm a collector. What, dust collector? Garbage collector? What kind of collector? Well, we'll speak up. Uh, music boxes. Oh, another one. By God, the thing's turning into a positive plague. Come in, come in, come in. Let's get to the bottom of it. Thank you, sir. Well, we'll come into my study. What's the explanation of this wild rash of music box collectors? You'd want a music box. Blasted things make you jump. Give me the gym jams. Well, come in, come in, young fellow. Must be something in music boxes I don't know about. A fine-looking young woman like Mr. What, what, what was your name again, my dear? Chaytek. We know each other, General. Oh, you do? Uh, uh, yes, we do. Yes, well, that's not surprising. After all, you you music box buns probably have some kind of club or other. Old meetings, swap boxes and all that, eh? Oh, we're going to hold a meeting, General. You can no. be sure of that, Harry. Oh, now, please, Myrna, don't misunderstand. I understand perfectly. Oh, then, now, then, I haven't got all the morning... Yeah, there we are now. Now then, before this young fellow interrupted us, you were making me an offer. Yes, for your music box, General. That is if you're willing to sell, General. What's Uh your price? Two pounds. Three pounds. Four pounds. Uh, Ten pounds. Fifteen guineas. Twenty-five guineas. This is as high as I'll go. Well, that's the highest bid. (laughs) Going? Going? God! No, 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 don't write a check, young fellow. I'll take it in cash. (laughs) 
you've got a nerve holding in on this. I guessed you were up to something when I missed that list from my purse. You took it, didn't you? Sure, I took it. What are you worrying about? You seem to be doing all right without the list. Only because I happen to remember seeing the name Cork Bottle on top of the list, and luckily there are only three or four of them in the phone book. Smart kid. You deserve better luck. My luck's all right. I've caught up with you, haven't I? <laughs> from now on, you've got yourself a constant companion. Oh, good. So you'd better start getting used to it. Well, that shouldn't be hard. <laughs> Then, at that moment... 
Did you see anyone come around the corner over there? No, sir. He, he can't have come this way. We'd better try the other way. Quick. Before she was married, wasn't she Mabel Schroeder from Dubuque, daughter of the chain store king? Yes, she and was. And she was divorced from her husband last year, wasn't she? That's right. That's who I told you. That doesn't mean she's looking for any boyfriends. With her money, there's always plenty of those. Well, don't look at me like that. I only want to speak to her. I really don't think it's possible. Here she comes. Right, Ethel. I'm good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Trying to locate a music box. A music box? Uh, yes, it's a, uh, quite the, it's a music box we've been trying to locate. Uh, I don't know whether you, anybody sent you a music box, sir, Principessa? Uh, yes, sir, we certainly did have a music box. Uh, Mr. Um, uh, a line. Uh, a line. Yes. Uh, a gentleman friend of mine gave it to my little daughter, Shirley. Oh? We haven't got it now. Oh. Uh, we gave it away to some charity or other. Uh, what? Uh, I believe, I believe it's a St. Andrew's Foundling Home in Orphanage, down the East End here. Shirley sure hated that music box. Why was that, Principessa? She couldn't stand that tune. Uh, what tune? Oh, you know, that awful tune. Look, this is the place, Harry. St. Uh, Andrew's Foundling, home and orphanage. Looks as if there's some kind of a ceremony going on. <laughs> Gentlemen and children, a little while ago, some kindly soul sent to us anonymously, amongst other gifts, a music box. A few days later, little Billy Gubbins, whom you all know, whilst playing with the box, stumbled and dropped it. This incident, trivial in itself, had the most surprising result. A secret compartment in the box was revealed, and in it were jewels. Naturally, we made inquiries in an effort to identify the donor, but fortunately for us, they all proved fruitless. And it is from the sale of these jewels that the building of this wonderful new wing is being financed. Here in my hands is the very box that brought about our good fortune. And I might add, it can still be used as a plaything by little Billy Gubbins. Listen. No, no. Harry! Does there happen to be amongst the visitors a doctor? A gentleman back there seems to have fainted.
Time returns in just a moment. said about honesty being the best policy. I wish I could. Adventures of the Saints, starring Vincent Price. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris and known to millions from books, magazines, and motion pictures. 
the Robin Hood of modern crime, now comes transcribed to radio, starring Hollywood's brilliant and talented actor Vincent Price as... The Saint. Just a moment. Yes? Are you Simon Templer? The man they call the Saint? Yes, I am. Who am I? Oh, what do I get if I come up with the correct answer? Let me in and I'll show you. Well, you're in. If you're carrying your laundry in that little black bag, Jack Benny is I said I'll show you. There. Oh, laundry never looked like this. Don't touch, just look. It's almost all big bills. A whole bag full of big bills. What did you do, sell your car to Honest John? That's what I want you to tell me. You mean you don't know how you got all this money? I don't know anything. That goes for who I am, where I came from, where I'm going. I see. An hour ago, I woke up in a taxi and we're driving through the park. I got a bump on the head the size of an ostrich egg and this bag full of sugar beside me. When I wake up from a bump on the head, I'm lucky if I find an aspirin beside me. I got no wallet, no papers, no keys, not even a matchbook. My pockets are empty and so's my head. I remember nothing. The cab driver? Oh, he's waiting for me downstairs. He says he picked me up on a midtown street. He says I gave him a ten spot to drive me through the park while I took a nap. So for a thousand dollars from this joy-jammed bag, Saint, who am I? My friend, I'm afraid you have amnesia. You'd better tear some doctor away from his cigarette test and have yourself looked at. You're nuts. You go to a doctor with a knock on your noggin, the doctor calls the cops, the cops come calling and write your own finish. You don't like cops? With a hat like I'm wearing, I'm not even positive I hate spinach. It isn't what I might think of cops that's important, Saint. It's what they might think of me. You mean the money? I mean exactly nothing else. Anybody carrying this kind of dough these days has either been stealing from a bank or holding on to the government. No hospital, Saint. No doctors, no cops, no explanations, no jails. You. Me. You. Once again, Saint, for a thousand bucks, who am I? All right. The thousand dollars goes to the Red Cross in anticipation of the day that I become a... National disaster. You've just made a deal. As for you, you'd better go into my guest room, lock yourself and your money in, and sleep off that bump, huh? Before it grows into another head and wants to know who it is. You'll find sleeping pills in the medicine chest if you need them. I'll need them. You're going somewhere? I want to see if that cab driver left his meter running. Thanks a lot, Mr. Templer. You're very welcome, Mr. I can't help you there. For the time being, I'll just call you... Mr. Sugar. Mister, all I know is the guy climbs in the cab at 48 in Madison, hands me a 10 spot, tells me to take it off through the park while he snatches 40. He handed you the money before you took him riding? Yeah, before. Well, let me have how come. Because I didn't want him in my cab, that's how come. The way he was bobbing and weaving, I thought he was lushed. I didn't want no trouble with no drunks. So you had a little argument? A little discussion. Then he takes out a $10 bill and forces it on me. So I stopped discussing and start driving. The $10 bill, he took it out of his pocket, huh? If you know any other place a guy can carry his dough, let me know and I'll take the bill off of my wife's neck when we go to bed nights. Hmm. Out of his pocket. What's the matter? You think I'm lying? You're not lying. Now I know how my old grandmother felt when the medicine man swore that the snake oil would cure her rheumatism. 
Well, having trouble finding out what the score is, huh? I don't care what the score is. I'd just like to know what the game is. Yeah, and I'm very glad, Cecil. Oh, so glad. You were waiting for me. Yeah, we seen you chatting with the cab pusher outside, Saint. We didn't want to interrupt. So we come here into the hall. To await you. We want to have a chat, too. With you, Saint. With you. Oh, please, now, one head at a time. Now, what should we chat about? A man. Which man? The man we've been shagging. Shagging? He means following. The guy's in your apartment now. When we phone the boss and tell him, the boss has a reaction. Right while he's talking to I us. I can understand it. I feel a little sick myself. Uh, the boss says we should collar you and ask you politely. No, Basil. He said first ask him politely. Oh, thank you, Cecil. So we are asking, Cecil. Politely? So why don't you politely tell us? Look, if you boys are auditioning a new television act, Radio City went that away. We almost do a lot of politely, Saint. We hardly got one good man left. So what goes with the man in your apartment, Saint? The boss says he wants to know. The boss says he gotta know. The boss says he don't want that old trouble with the law should start up again. Basil, you're talking too much. I apologize, And, Saint, you are not talking enough. Now, politely, for the final time, the man with the black bag... What's he up to? Yeah, and what's he carrying in a bag? Mustache wax. Mustache wax? Yes, yeah, a new kind of mustache wax, homogenized. He dropped in to give me a free home demonstration. Oh, don't give us none of that. You ain't even got a mustache. Well, he said he didn't mind waiting. Oh, dear. Basil, shall you hold him while I hit him, or shall I hold him while you hit him? No, you make the choice. No, no, Basil, I insist. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time to accept my thank you. You thanking me? Yeah, for making me a member of the Thug of the Month Club. To think of all the money I've been wasting on gymnasiums. From where I sat, it didn't look wasted. Huh. Go on, beat it, boys. I'll talk to you later. I don't be sore, boss. We try to be polite, then we see something. We Yeah, yeah, beat it, beat it. Uh, you know me, Templar? Uh, not as well as I would if I bet on horse races. Frank O'Connor, you're a bookmaker. Well, you don't know me at all, Saint. I'm not a bookmaker. I'm the bookmaker. Mm, bully for you. We'll get right to the heart of the thing, eh? How much? I've got nothing for sale. Try Macy's. Ah, uh, let's be a little realistic, Templar. The way you live, the way you dress, you know, you got that dollar look. All that you've got to do is tell me in 50 words or less what I want to know about your guest inside and the big cash prize is yours. What's he up to? Mm, he doesn't know either, he says. Oh, come on, fella. Give a little. Do I have to start mentioning amounts? You can mention any amounts of amounts you want. I've nothing to sell you, O'Connor. All right, okay, if that's the way you want to play the hand. But you won't hold out long. I've found that people and racehorses have one important thing in common. They both have a price. And then why bother me with your impossible questions? Go make a deal with citation. Now, the deal will be with you, Saint. And if my money won't make the record spin, the boys have a way all their own. Mm, yes, the boys. It's too bad they weren't able to stick around and play a little longer. But I guess the zoo was getting anxious. Oh, you'll be seeing them again. Soon. And Saint... Maybe you'd better start getting anxious. 
With fate conspire to change this sorry scheme of things entire, would we not shatter it to bits and then... Anyone who recites Omar Khayyam to a highball either loves Omar Khayyam or loves highball. <laughs> I'm happy to say that I love and am faithful to both. And what brings the great saint, the scourge of the wicked, the nemesis of evil, to this humble drinking place? I have a brain to pick with you, Murphy. Whose brain? Your brain. Ah, you've made a wise choice. <laughs> Do we haggle about price, or is it the usual? The price is what it always is. Splendid, splendid. I will accept payment now. <laughs> hey, bartender. Yeah? A bottle of bourbon for my friend. One of the stamped for services rendered. Coming right up. Ah. Here you are. Uh, thank you. And now, uh, render friend. At your service, friend. <laughs> Now, which branch of my fabulous brain have you purchased? Memory branch, mice and men division, Department of Thugs and Bookmakers, the file on Frank O'Connor. Mm. Yeah, Frank O'Connor, born in Boston in 1912, father was... Yeah, which brings us up to recent years and an old trouble with the law that he doesn't want should start up again, to quote a thug named Basil. The case of the missing paint man, Payne. Huh? Uh, let's have that in waltz time. George Payne, Payne's Paints. He liked to play the horses. He didn't like to pay the bookmaker. He didn't mind making promises, though. When was this? Oh, a couple of years ago. He owed O'Connor what could easily have been the annual budget of a small Latin American republic. How did it all come out? He disappeared. Disappeared? Like the buttons on a shirt in a ten-cent laundry. It created quite a splash. Sure. How come you, I didn't... You were in Las Vegas at the time. The Hotel Flamingo, I believe. It was room uh, 210, and the lady you liked in the floor show was named Yvonne. Yeah, someday when you have time, would you mind writing my memoir? But right now, let's go on with the opera. Yeah. The police found out about Payne's debt to O'Connor. They picked O'Connor up, grilled him, medium rare, made him very uncomfortable, found they couldn't pin anything on him, turned him loose. Yeah, and Payne? Where are the snows of yesteryear? The popular theory is that he is a victim of amnesia somewhere. Amnesia? He's had it twice before, his doctor said. So be kind to the next bum who asks for a handout, Simon. He may own a million-dollar paint factory in Long Island City. Any relatives? Wife. Much younger. Much prettier, too, they tell me. She's running the paint factory now, bigger and better than ever. That's all. Close file. And I got my money's worth. Naturally. I do have a remarkable brain, don't I? Fabulous. Any time, Mr. Templer, any time. I am here at my office every day. Excuse me. You're excused, but with reluctance. I'd like to get by, please. Yeah, you'd get by anywhere. Look, I'm a very busy woman. I have no intention of standing here on a catwalk suspended over a thousand-gallon vat of boiling resin while a stranger throws passes at me. Mm, so that's what's boiling in that outsized tub below us, huh? Resin. 
And I had hopes it would turn out to be a hot Tom and Jerry. See here. Who are you? What are you doing here? Well, they told me in the front office that Mrs. Payne would be back here in the production office. I'm uh, Simon Templer. I'm Mrs. Payne. And if you want to talk to me, Mr. Templer, let's get away from the heat of that vat before my makeup runs. Well, if it runs, I'll chase it for you. Come into my office. Oh, thank you. Ms. Payne, I'm, uh, I'm here to talk to you about your husband. My husband? Mm. You know something about George. You know where he is. Well, let's just say I know where a man with amnesia is. At least he says he has amnesia. He says... I'm afraid I don't understand. Well, frankly, neither do I yet. Then what makes you think you... Well, a bookmaker named Frank O'Connor... O'Connor? Yeah, and two patrons of the arts named Basil and Cecil who work for him. I'm afraid I don't follow you. In the course of a dull conversation, Basil let it slip that their interest in my man with a paralyzed memory is a continuation of their one-time interest in your husband. So you think that the man with amnesia and my husband are one and the same? Mm, it's the theory that I'm working on. Oh, if only it turns out to be more than a theory. Uh, Mr. Templer, when can I meet this man? We'll get your hat. Now? All right. Only... Well, look, uh... if you're worried about that resin you have cooking... Couldn't you get some obliging neighbor to turn it off when it's done? My only obliging neighbor is the foreman of this plant. I can leave as soon as he comes back. Fine. Here's my card. Thank you. Oh, if only I could have George back again. Mr. Templer, if the man with the bump on his head does turn out to be my husband, I shall be eternally in your debt. That idea has some fascinating connotations. Say yes? Joe Fowler, Interurban Insurance Company. Oh, I don't need any. Oh, I'm not a salesman. I'm an investigator. Of what? Well, people, mostly. I hear you've dug up a guy who might be George Payne. You have big ears. I have a big telephone. Mrs. Payne called me right after you left her. I'd like to have a talk with this guy who might be George Payne. Now, come on in, Fowler. If there's anything left of the guy when I get through with him, it's yours. You don't sound happy about this character. No, and I won't be until I know why he's pretending to have amnesia. Pretending? Yeah. Uh, why is the insurance company dipping an oar into this? Quarter of a million bucks. Good reason. Mm -hmm. 250,000 good reasons. That's the amount you won't have to pay if Mr. Payne is still living, huh? That's it. Yeah. Well, come and meet my guest. Oh, I'd like to very much. Mr. Sugar. He didn't lock Templar. Oh, hanging from the... Oh. Well, he committed suicide. Yeah, it looks that way. It was supposed to look that way. But if he could talk, I think he'd tell us he'd been murdered. Cheerful place, isn't it, Fowler? Waiting rooms of morgues aren't supposed to be cheerful. 
You're pretty sure that the unfortunate victim is Payne, aren't you? Oh, I didn't say that, Saint. I said he fits the physical description. But if the lovely Mrs. Payne should tell us that she is satisfied with the identification that the corpse is her husband, then what? Well, then in all likelihood, the insurance company will be equally satisfied. And $250,000 moves from your pocket to hers. That's the way it goes, Saint. When a policyholder dies, we pay. It's the basic principle of life insurance, you know. I know. But in this particular instance, a few things strike me as being a little too basic. What do you mean? And I can answer that partially as of now, but I prefer to answer it entirely as of later. You still think Payne was murdered, Saint? Thoroughly. Guesswork? Mathematics. The well-worn problem of two added to two and equaling four, only in this case it was ten and ten equaling twenty. Twenty what? Sleeping pill. Sleeping pills? Twenty sleeping pills, each one guaranteed by the manufacturer to make you dream of Eddie Lamar. They, um, they're in my medicine chest. Oh, today I'm stupid. The late lamented knew I had dream pills in my medicine chest. He even said he thought he would need one. So he took one, and it didn't work. And he lay awake with a bump in the head and a skull full of amnesia, and being mentally upset, he became depressed, and he got out of bed and hung himself. How, um, have you ever hung yourself? Yeah. Huh? It's a difficult thing to do. And it's a dreary way to die. Painful, too. You can swing and sway in agony for as much as five minutes before you pronounce yourself dead. Well, but people have been known to do it, Saint. Not people who have 20 sleeping pills available. Uh, see what you mean. If he'd wanted to kill himself, he'd have gone after the pills instead of the courts. Say, you are a detective. Yeah, but why was he murdered? Well, some people call it the root of all evil. You and I simply refer to it as money. This is where I get off. If he was knocked off for anything, it was certainly not for money. Or didn't you notice that little black bag was still with him? If the killer had taken the little black bag with its little green contents, the suicide he hoped to make everyone think it was would no longer look like suicide. There's a lot of sugar in that bag, Saint. And the killer could have so easily taken it. it. Cost him a lot of money to make this murder look like suicide. The way I'm thinking, it didn't cost him one red cent. What do you mean? Not one Chinese dime. Because that little black bag with its cargo of joy, every last penny of it, will now go back to its lawful owner. Lawful owner? But who? The killer. I don't think I'll wait any longer for Mrs. Payne to come and identify the body. I have a sudden urge to talk to a certain bookmaker. You're going? You're not interested in knowing whether or not Mrs. Payne identifies the guy as her husband? Mr. Fowler. Are you kidding? Taxi! Taxi! You don't want a taxi, Mr. Templer. Does he, Basil? No, indeed, he don't, Cecil. You have used your head. He's used both his heads. Is it recess time at the monkey house again, boys? He is funny. Is he, Basil? He is funny now, Cecil, but will he be funny later? No, he will not, Basil. It is not possible to be funny when you are sleeping on the riverbed in a pair of cement pajamas. I want you knights of the round table to take me somewhere, hmm? Oh, we're going to take you somewhere. Yeah, I want to see O'Connor. There are some questions I intend to make him answer. You are going to make him? Yeah. Basil, either this chap is screwy or somebody already beat his brains up. Come, Saint. The boss is awaiting in the car. Well, I hope he hasn't been awaiting too long. Uh, this way, Pigeon. And, Saint, 
We are just about on a voyage of losing our politeness, are we not, Cecil? We indeed are. What my colleague means, Saint, is don't venture to try nothing. Yes, Saint, like I told you, people and racehorses, they both have a price. You wouldn't talk for money, so the price is now a painless rub-out as against one that's full of agony. Hey, you're being far too generous, O'Connor. Hey, drive carefully, you hooligan. You want the cops on us? I'm sorry, boss. Don't worry, boss. I will see the battle drives carefully. Yeah, yeah. Well, Saint, look, I'll make the offer even more attractive. I'll let you choose the spot where the bullets go. Oh, really? Now, that's too much. Frankly, Saint, I'd like to be able to tell you that I'll let you go after you told me what I want. You know, maybe with just a couple of broken bones here and there, some little stuff. But I can't do it. I can't let you continue alive. You're too smart. And unless you're running way off form, you've stirred up a fire I thought I'd put out three years ago. You did kill Payne the paint man three years ago, didn't you? Well, he owed me some pretty important money. The boys and I called on him to collect, and he said no. And the boys went into action. I'll stay with that. Yeah, these two apes of mine, they made with a little too much action. See, I didn't want George Payne killed. Just wanted him scared into paying up. Hmm, but Payne died, and the river bottom has been his home these last three years. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And tonight, he's going to have company on that lonely river bottom. And it won't be no mermaid. <laughs> ready to give me an earful now, Saint? Not quite ready. We'll make him ready when we get to the shack, boys. Yeah, I'll be just screaming to talk. Meanwhile, then, let's have some more of your reminiscences, O'Connor. For instance, uh, what made you so interested in the little man with the black bag, huh? What made me interested? Hey, you crazy? <laughs> Here we go. We knock a guy off three years ago, and for three years, he's laying in a river. Hey. Eh? How would you feel if you see him or his exact duplicate, the same clothes, same everything, on the street one day last week? I'd feel haunted. So you had the boys tail him for a couple of days? Yeah. And one of the places he went was my apartment? Yeah, yeah. But where he goes twice before that, that's what I get to worry over. Ah, yeah. He went to the place where George Payne would be most apt to go, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. So you began to worry about it, huh? You didn't want George Payne or anything concerning him to pop up anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You worried because whatever Payne's double was up to had to be a swindle. And you were afraid that the swindle might interest the police again in the Payne affair. And that you'd be on the carpet again and maybe this time you'd be nailed as Payne's killer. Yeah, I knew that you had it figured, Saint. (laughs) You see what brains do for a guy, though? You are going to be killed because you got brains. Ah, Sam. Come on, Saint. Come on, give, huh? Give. Spare the boys some bruised knuckles. What's the swindle the guy who looks like pain is pulling? Well, if he's pulling us any swindle right now, it's trying to convince St. Peter that he belongs. Huh? Yeah, the man you're worried about is dead. Dead? Now you're pulling a swindle. Well, a little sightseeing trip to the morgue will convince you. Okay. All right, we'll take that trip, Saint. And if the guy is dead like you say, maybe you'll live a little. But if he's not, you're going to be dead a little. 
I'm glad you're still here. I see everyone else is gone. Oh, I dread the thought of going home. After seeing my poor husband in the morgue, I, I thought maybe if I could work, I, I'd not think too much. And what do I do now, applaud? Pardon? The performance, the speech you just gave. Mrs. Payne, frankly speaking, you're just about as bad an actress as you are a swindler. Why, how dare you? Look, are you going to climb down off that high dudgeon, or must I push you? Your little plot was a honey. It was so simple, it almost worked. Look here, I demand to know what... Such a simple swindle, almost stupid. We have a Mr. Payne who has been missing for three years. We have a Mrs. Payne who is dying to get her hot little hands on a quarter of a million dollars worth of insurance money. You're insane. And finally, we have the highly fortuitous appearance of a man who looks so much like the missing Mr. Payne that even his bookie gives him a double take. Plot? Make a deal with the double. Have him fake amnesia. Tell him to call on the saint and ask the saint to find out who he is. I don't know what you're talking about. Give the man a prop, a bag of money, so that the man can say, I wouldn't be bothering you, saint. I'd go to the police and ask them to find out who I am, except that this money I've got is probably illegal. So the saint puts his fabulous nose to the grindstone and sniffs out that the man is George Payne. And the man, of course, willingly allows himself to be murdered. So that I can collect my husband's insurance. The man thought he would take over a paint factory. That's all he thought. He didn't know about insurance. So, the man is then murdered. By me, of course. No, no. You and I were here together, remember? We were standing over that hot vat of resin at the time the man was murdered. Well, thank you at least for not accusing me of murder, Mr. Templer. I said you didn't actually commit the murder, but your colleague did. So you are just as much of a candidate for the chair as he is. Oh, I have a colleague, have I? With an imagination like yours, Mr. Temper, I'm surprised you didn't make it a whole game. Mm, so the man is murdered and Mrs. Payne says, yep, that's that's George Payne and collects all the insurance money as of now without having to wait that long, dreary seven years before her missing spouse can be declared legally dead. End plot. <laughs> you should write comic books, Mr. Templer. Yeah, I should. At least the murderers in that business are all made of ink. You know, this whole affair might have given me great difficulties if it weren't for one thing. Oh, what one thing? Mm, a stupid thing. The man with the alleged amnesia telling me he awoke from his deep nap with his pockets picked dry. And yet the cab driver telling me that he took a $10 bill out of his pocket. A little unimportant and stupid. Of course, you can prove all the wild things you've been saying. There's only one thing that still consumes my curiosity, Mrs. Payne. Who is your accomplice, the man who actually committed the murder? Well, all you have to do, Mr. Templer, is turn around and you'll see him. And you'll see this beautiful gun I'm holding, too. Oh, yes, an insurance company detective would be a big help in swindling an insurance company. Stay where you are, Saint. I said stay where you are. Come on, now. Give give me that. Come give it to me. Thank you. Run it, run that won't help, Mrs. Payne. Hey, be careful, the back! Someday, somebody is going to buy a can of your paint, Mrs. Payne, and wonder why there are buttons in it. Don't bother, Mrs. Payne. I've been called it before. What do you say we go drop in on some policemen, huh? 
listening to another transcribed adventure of the saint, the Robin Hood of modern crime. Now here is our star, Vincent Price. Ladies and gentlemen, in tonight's cast, you heard Joan Banks as Mrs. Payne and Sheldon Leonard as Frank. Ed Max and Tony Barrett were Cecil and Basil. Sidney Miller was Murphy, Lamont Johnson, Mr. Sugar, and Jack Moyles Fowler. This is Vincent Price inviting you to join us again next week at this same time for another exciting adventure of the saint. Good night. This adventure of The Saint was written by Michael Cramoy. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris, is a James L. Safier production and is directed by Helen Mack. Vincent Price is soon to be seen co-starring with Michelin Pearl and Errol Flynn in Marsh- uh, William Marshall's production of Bloodline. All you Saint fans will be glad to know the Saint comic books are available on all newsstands. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Next Sunday, you're invited to the Theater Guild on the Air's full hour and a half production of Shakespeare's masterpiece, Hamlet. The pages of Hamlet come to life on Theater Guild next Sunday, March 4th on NBC. Sounded good, real good. A weekend at Malibu, expenses paid with a cash bonus thrown in. But that was before I knew about the henchman, the redhead, and the corpse. These three and a white Panama hat ruined it all for me. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's unusual story, The Panama Hat. I was sitting in my office bombing the ashtray on my desk with paper clips, wondering what kind of a job a private detective gets when clients stop calling completely. I was seesawing between the picture of me as a well-starched huckster and the more comfortable portrait of Marlowe, author in English tweeds, man of distinction. And the telephone brought me to a rude awakening. Marlowe speaking. My name is Isabel Gordon, Mr. Marlowe. I must see you at once. My husband Bruce is in terrible danger. Could you possibly meet me in an hour at the Pelican Inn? It's a small roadside place on the way to Malibu. I'll explain everything then. Pelican Inn. One hour, Mrs. Gordon. <laughs> Pelican Inn was strictly a liquor license with chairs, and a bored piano player in one corner grinding away. The place was empty, and I was about to order a drink when the front door opened and a woman entered. She was tall and thin and right out of Harper's Bazaar, from double ankle strap shoes to close-cropped hair. One look at her fear-crowded eyes, and I knew it was Isabel Gordon. I got up and introduced myself. Then we went to a table, and she started to talk. For two weeks now, Mr. Marlowe, my husband Bruce has been receiving unsigned, threatening letters. I'm almost sick with worry. I I don't know what to do. Now, wait a minute, Mrs. Gordon. The first thing to do is to get hold of yourself. And tell me the whole thing right from the beginning. Yes. All right. Well, first of all, Bruce and I have only been married a little more than a year. We're living with my uncle, Avery Fairchild, on an estate out beyond Malibu. I see. What does your husband do for a living, Mrs. Gordon? Why... He's a photographer. Movie or commercial? Well, at present, it's neither. You see, Bruce has been terribly unsettled since the war. Lost, sort of, and... Mm-hmm. 
then recently he got interested in photography, and it's been a great help to him. But he doesn't exactly work at it, huh? Well, he's converted one of the rooms in the guest cottage into a studio, and he spends almost all of his time there experimenting with portrait work. But he doesn't actually have a job, if that's what you mean. How does that appeal to your Uncle Avery? Oh, I'll be honest with you, Mr. Marlowe. My uncle thinks the sun rises and sets on me, but with Bruce... It's total eclipse, is that it? I'm afraid so. All his life, Uncle Avery has been concerned only with dollars and cents. He, he simply doesn't understand or sympathize with an artist's viewpoint. Uh-huh. Now, what about these unsigned letters? Well, Bruce has been getting them for the past two weeks. They're always made up of words cut from newspapers and pasted on ordinary paper. That's a cheap stunt. What do they say? Each one threatens my husband's life. Yet both he and Uncle Avery consider them nothing more than the work of some harmless crank. In spite of the fact that for the last several days, I've seen a strange man lurking around our place every night. Can you describe him? No. Oh, except he's about your height and build. Is that all? Yes. No, I... Wait a minute. There is something else. Each time I saw him, Mr. Marlowe, he was wearing a white Panama. Well, that's not much to go on. Tell me, why haven't you called the police? Uncle Avery wouldn't hear of it. He hates publicity, dreads it. That's why I suggested contacting you, a private detective. That's sort of a bodyguard for Bruce, huh? Yes. However, Mr. Marlowe, Bruce is somewhat temperamental and... I know he'd rebel at the thought of being watched over, so I'd I'd rather you posed as a, a house guest, an old college chum of mine, perhaps. My fee is twenty-five a day plus expenses, Mrs. Gordon. Oh, any price is all right, Mr. Marlowe. Let's see, it's a little after seven now. Can you be at our place at Malibu at nine? I think so. But as a fellow alumnus, Isabel, one last question: Where'd you go to college? Southern California. Why? Well, I was afraid you might say Vassar. <laughs> After Isabel left, I remembered that I was already on my expense account. So I had a tasteless, cold, hot blue plate special and a burned cup of coffee. Then I stepped out of the Pelican Inn and headed across the paved parking lot to my car. It was already dark, and I was admiring the full moon and the beautiful wash it made over the ocean when it happened. Hey, mister! What the... Are you all right, mister? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Thanks to your sounding off. That nut was aiming right for you. Yeah, yeah, looks that way. Did you happen to get his number? No. What no, about his I face? Didn't. Can you describe him? No. Matter of fact, I only noticed one thing. What was that? The hat he was wearing. It was a white Panama. I tried to be broad-minded, but there was no other way to look at it. The gentleman in the white Panama hat definitely meant business. I returned to my apartment in Hollywood, where I shaved, showered, and packed. And I headed for Malibu. At a quarter to nine, I was inside the grounds of the Fairchild Estate. Another mile, and I was at the front door. When I entered, Isabel greeted me like I was a keg of brandy around a St. Bernard's neck. Then we waded through an inch-thick carpet to the library where Uncle Avery, fat, bald, and looking like he'd just bitten into an underripe persimmon, was waiting. I wasn't asked to sit down, and I wasn't offered a cigar. Avery Fairchild was not one to waste time. I'm a very rich man, Mr. Marlowe. As such, I'm the target for all kinds of fortune hunters, confidence men, and cranks. In my lifetime, I've been threatened and pestered by a score of crackpots, each one slightly more psychopathic than the last. It's never bothered me, and it never will. However, in this case, the approach is a bit different. Meaning you think somebody's trying to get at you through your nephew, huh? Never refer to him as my nephew. My niece's husband, if you please. And don't forget it. Uncle Avery... Isabel, my feelings about your husband are no secret. You're being unfair, Uncle Avery. Just because Bruce is an artist and he... Artist, is he? Why, Isabel, that man's no more an artist than I am a horse jockey. Good evening, everybody. Uh, hello, Bruce. 
Hello, darling. You were saying something, Uncle Avery? Bruce, um, I want you to meet Philip Marlowe. We were great friends at school, and when I heard he was in town for a while, I insisted that he spend a weekend with us. How do you do, Mr. Gordon? It's a pleasure to have you with us, Mr. Marlowe. You're very welcome. I do the welcoming around here, Bruce. <laughs> Mr. Marlowe's had a long trip, and I'm certain he'd like to turn in early. Bruce, darling, he's going to stay in the guest cottage, the room next to your studio. Will you show him there, please? Oh, I'll be glad to. By the way, Isabella, I'm going to work late, so I'll say goodnight to you now. Good night, dearest. Good night, sweet. Please, please be careful. Yes, Bruce, by all means, be careful. Remember, the true artist belongs to posterity or something. The guest cottage was only a landscape top skip and a jump from the museum that Uncle Avery called home. And as Bruce and I strolled along a flagstone path, I feigned a deep interest in photography. That was all my host needed. He struck at the bait like a shark with malnutrition. Well, Mr. Milo, it didn't even occur to me that photography might be one of your hobbies. Isabel never said a word. Well, good for Isabel. I'm strictly a dabbler. Now, tell me, Mr. Gordon, how long have you been at this? Portrait work? Hmm. Oh, about six months. You see, I divide my time between my studio here and a school I attend in Hollywood. That way I capture both the theory and practical experience at the same time. Oh. Well, here we are. Would you like to see the studio? Yes, I would. Yeah, let me get the light. Well, this is all right, huh? And larger, two cameras, dark room. Are these your pictures? Yes. What do you think of them? Uh, I don't know exactly. They're certainly different, huh? They are unusual, aren't they? Yeah. You see, Marlo, each picture is actually made up of two separate studies which are superimposed. I call it uh, interpretive photography. Uh-huh. Now, uh, this one, a splash of light and a bent pipe cleaner? The sun and the plant shoot. It's called metamorphosis. Oh. Well, what about that one there in the corner? The girl's face and uh, clouds, maybe? Clouds? Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you, you'll excuse me, but that picture isn't ready for display yet. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pry. I thought it was just another interpretive photograph. Well, it's not. That is, it, it isn't finished yet. Now, Mr. Marlowe, I'm afraid I've forgotten what my wife said about your long trip. Shall I show you to your room? Yes, please do, Mr. Gordon. My room on the other side of the guest cottage was wider than Hollywood Boulevard. After Bruce apologized for his display of temperament and bid me a polite good night, I climbed into the silk pajamas that were laid out for me, stretched out on the bed and tried to figure who belonged to the white Panama hat. About an hour passed, and I wasn't getting any sensible answers. So I switched out the light, put my gun on the table next to me, and snuggled into what felt like a mile and a half of mattress. I was almost asleep, and the clatter of a shovel falling on the walk outside brought me straight up in bed. I grabbed my gun and made it for the door. But the second I threw it open, I knew that I'd made a mistake. Whoever kicked over that shovel had hurt me, and met me with a large fist that came straight at my face. Oh! As I came back into the world, I was embarrassed to find myself alone and flat on my back. When I started to get up, I felt like the L.A. Dons, water boy and all, had run over my face. My gun was a few feet away, and when I went to pick it up, I stopped short. It was a souvenir from the man with the great big fist. A gold cigarette lighter. It was engraved, 
to Skipper on his birthday. Putting it in my pocket, I picked up my gun and made for Bruce's studio. He wasn't there. I threw on some clothes and went back to the house and found Isabel in the living room. I was about to give her a biased account of the shortest fight on record when I noticed Uncle Avery quietly entering the house from a side door that led to the garden. What's the matter, Phil? Bruce isn't in the studio anymore. What? Now, Isabel, there's no reason for alarm. Why, Bruce often goes off into the night like this. Called it a search for beauty or some such rot. And what was it you were after just now outside, Mr. Fairchild? I was looking for my niece, Marlowe. Isabel, your cousin John telephoned to say he wouldn't be down this weekend. Oh. I didn't know there would be other guests. Oh, just my cousin, John Martinville. Not really a guest. He comes down often. Yeah, too often to suit oh, me. Oh, Uncle Avery, please. You know that I'm fond of him. Yes, but I don't know why. He's a chronic gambler and of no use to anyone. Living at the Wilshire Gardens when he can't afford it. Driving expensive cars. Oh, you're too hard on him. Skipper is Skipper? There. Yes. Do you know him? Uh, no. No, no, I don't. Well, you're not missing anything, believe me. Oh, I do believe you, Mr. Fairchild. I believe your every word. What? Good night, all. I left the house and headed straight for my car with the Wilshire Gardens in Hollywood in mind. It was just a chance that John Skipper Martin might own a white Panama hat. When I got to the prodigal cousin's bungalow, it was dark inside. So I pressed one hand close to my gun and the other against the doorbell. But there was no answer. The side window was open and I started toward it when a nasty voice greeted me from the shadow of a palm tree. Good evening. Lovely night, isn't it? I hadn't noticed. I've been busy. I know. We've been waiting for you for a long time. We? Uh-huh. Me and my nice shiny revolver here. 38. Oh, I see. Well, you make a handsome couple and I hope you're both very happy together. Now, what do you want? I don't want anything. I'm here to give you something. Advice. Look, brother, I've already told you I'm busy, so if this is a heist, let's get it over with fast. You know, I think you're confused. I'm holding the gun, Mr. Martin. Martin? John Skipper Martin. Surprised that I know your name? Why, uh, yes. Yes, I am. I don't recall having had the pleasure. You haven't. People never forget me, Mr. Martin. My tag is Brock. Does that mean anything? No, what do you do? Sing, dance, tell jokes? Yeah, that's it. The last one. I tell jokes. I can't wait. You won't have to, Mr. Martin. I'm going to tell you one right now. goes like this. Once upon a time, a young punk borrowed $10,000 from a generous gambler on his promise to pay the money back within a week. But the young punk never came across. So the gambler told a nice fellow named Brock to call on the young punk and tell him that he had 48 hours in which to get the money together. And that if he didn't, he'd never see the 49th hour. What's the matter, Mr. Martin? Don't you like jokes? Brock grinned, shoved his thirty-eight into a shoulder holster and walked away. As soon as he rounded the corner, I went to the open window and climbed in. I rummaged through two closets looking for a white Panama you-know-what. I was about to search a third when I heard something that brought me to a dead stop. There was a key in the front door lock. I closed my right hand over the gun in my pocket, moved flush against the side wall and waited... But the moment the door swung open, the telephone rang. And the hulk of a man that entered went straight for it. He was wearing a gray fedora. Hello? Oh, hello, Isabel. What? Bruce? 
Are you sure? But that's impossible. I, I mean, things like that just don't... Excuse me, Isabel. I, I think I have a visitor. I'll call you back. Reach, Mr. Martin. Who are you? My name is Brock. You owe a client of mine $10,000. He wants his money in 48 hours. I'll get it. I, I swear I will. I'll have it right here, on time, all of it. How are you going to do that, Mr. Martin? I, I, I've got a way. Someone's going to give it to me tonight. Why? Why? Because it's the healthy thing to do. That's why. That, that's all you wanted to know, isn't it? That's all. Good night, Mr. Martin. Hello? This is Marlowe, Isabel. I'm calling from a drugstore in Hollywood. Has Bruce returned yet? No, and he won't. He's been kidnapped. What's that? And whoever did it wants $50,000 before morning or we'll never see Bruce alive again. I walked my car opposite the Wilshire Gardens. I felt like my brain had spent the night in a cement mixer. I was about to head back for Malibu when I suddenly saw Skipper Martin dash out of his bungalow and pile into a long, glossy convertible. I followed him out to the Pacific Palisades, where he made a call at a little house which sat on a bluff overlooking the sea. Once he was inside, I moved up quietly and saw that the name on the mailbox was Miss Carla Winters. I crawled up to a lace curtain window where I could see what was going on. One look at Miss Winters made the damage I was doing to my tweeds worthwhile. She was strictly dragon lady, with flaming red hair and a waist you could span with two hands. If you were lucky enough to get that close. And the rest of the measurements oh, fit yeah. just perfect. Why, you sniveling coward, you wouldn't dare open your mouth about us. Wouldn't I? Listen, Carla, I've got myself Skipper Martin to look after. First, last, and always, you remember that. Why should I? You've always been cheap talk and no more. Look at you now. You're in trouble, so what do you do? You holler blackmail. Go on, get out of here. Get out of here before I kill you. <laughs> Skipper slammed the front door, stomped to his car, and roared off. I couldn't figure any reason, legitimate reason, that is, for calling on Carla Winters. So I returned to the Fairchild place. Isabel was somewhere between hysteria and collapse over the fact that she and Bruce had less than $2,000 in their own name. Uncle Avery, of course, was more than reluctant to pay the ransom demanded for the return of a man he'd rather not have returned. But his niece won out. All right, Isabel, I'll give you the money. But understand, I'm doing this for you, not for yes, that no yes, good... Yes, Uncle Avery, I understand, but can you get that much cash at this hour? The banks Who are... said anything about banks? You know, I don't like them. Money will be in your hands in 30 minutes. In the meantime, tell Mr. Milo here what arrangements you've made with your husband's abductors. One minute, Mr. Fairchild. What about the police? The police have already been notified, Mr. Milo. They've agreed not to interfere until tomorrow morning. By that time, I suppose we'll have Bruce return to us. To... to us, Uncle Avery? Uh, that's a mere slip of the tongue, Isabel. I'm only paying for his return. You take over from there. I don't want him. A half hour later, Avery Fairchild handled me a bundle of bills which added up to $50,000 cash. The bills seemed slightly dirty... The old geezer must have had them buried someplace. For a moment, I couldn't help thinking, boy, to get at this place with a shovel sometime. But then I got back to the more pressing matters at hand. I wrapped up the money in a shoebox, and I drove north along the Pacific Coast Highway. 
I covered the 60 miles of the rendezvous, which was a junkyard near Ventura, in about as many minutes. And according to instructions, I slowed down to 10 miles an hour. I blinked my lights twice, tossed out the shoebox. I was just about to resume my speed when the headlights of an approaching car fell on a man as he darted back into the junkyard. And I saw what I'd been expecting all the time. A white Panama hat. But I was still playing by the rules. So there was only one thing I could do about it. I slammed my foot down on the accelerator and kept it there until I reached the nearest telephone, where I telephoned Skipper Martin at the Wilshire Gardens. It was just possible that he owned two hats. But that little balloon exploded in a hurry. Hello? Mr. Martin? Yes. Who is this? This is Brock. Remember me? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. I've been hoping you'd call. You mean you got the money right now? Well, well, well no, not, not, not this minute, but I will have it in a couple of hours. You're sure, Mr. Martin? I'm positive, Brock. Now only one thing figured. The man in the Panama hat worked for Skipper Martin. It had to be. An hour later, I pulled in at the Fairchild Estate. And the moment I put my double A over the threshold, I knew that the kidnapper, too, had kept his part of the bargain. Bruce Gordon was back, safe and sound. It happened shortly after you retired, Mr. Marlowe. I was working in my studio when a man wearing a, a white, white Panama, Panama hat... Yes. But how did you know that, Mr. Marlowe? They're very popular this season, Mr. Gordon. Darling, Mr. Marlowe was a private detective. Huh? But I'll tell you all about that later. Go on with your story. Well, this man was wearing a handkerchief over his face, and he forced me to go along with him at gunpoint. Took me to a car parked in the service driveway and told me to turn around. And I was hit from behind and went out cold. Oh, darling, how terrible. Oh, wasn't pleasant to you. When I came to, I was bound hand and foot, blindfolded and gagged. I had no idea where I was. Oh, but didn't you see anybody before you were released? No, Uncle Avery. Before uh, they let me go, they, they hit me again. Uh, when I came to that time, I was lying in the road out near Ventura, untied. That's about it. I suppose you've told the story to the police already, huh? No, he hasn't, Mr. Marlowe, and what's more, he isn't going to. I'm sorry, but I was forced to lie to you earlier this evening. The police mean reporters, and they mean publicity. And I hate publicity. I'm sure you see my point. I wouldn't make book on that, Mr. Fairchild. Secrets like this only encourage kidnappers. Well, since we no longer see eye to eye, Mr. Marlowe, I'd suggest that we consider your services at an end. I'll have my check at your office in the morning. Good night, sir. Avery Fairchild wasn't the kind of a man you argued with. I threw my coat over my arm, tipped my hat to Isabel, and stepped outside. I hadn't once mentioned Skipper Martin to the family. That might have been a mistake, but I still wanted to look around before I yelled copper. As I walked past the guest cottage, I decided to go in and check Bruce's studio. Maybe the man in the white PH had left a few odd footprints on the ceiling. I tossed my coat in a corner chair and started through the clutter. Uh, ten minutes later, I'd found nothing. I was about to leave when I suddenly remembered the picture of a girl and some clouds that Bruce had been so careful to keep out of sight. Uh, it hadn't been moved. And when I brought it into the light, I didn't have to look twice. It was the portrait of Carla Winters, a red-headed dragon lady that Skipper Martin had visited. Now things began to add up. At the chauffeur's quarters, there was an outside telephone, and I put through a hurry call to Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide in L.A. 
The best I could get was one Sergeant Neely. I'm sorry, Mr. Marlowe, but the lieutenant's out on a call right now. There's some kind of a row uptown. Well, do you know where he is? The address, I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. It's uh, one of those bungalows at the Wilshire Gardens. The Wilshire Gardens? That's right. What's so special about that? Maybe nothing. I'll know in a minute. Thanks, Neely. This is Marlowe, Ibarra. What brings you to Skipper Martin's at this late hour? Well, it seems as though some person or persons unknown fired a gun several times a little more than an hour ago. Four shots, to be exact. Well, you think Skipper Martin fired them? No, Marlowe. I'm sure Martin didn't fire them. You see, he stopped them. Personally. Before I hung up, I gave Ibarra a quick rundown on the whole story. After making me feel like a schoolboy for keeping him in the dark so long... He told me to sit on the Fairchild's front steps until he got there. Well, it gave me a half hour to kill, most of which I spent walking around aimlessly, trying to get something close to four out of two and two. But I couldn't. Finally, I heard Ibarra siren up to the front door. I was about to head for him when the chill in the morning air reminded me that my topcoat was still in Bruce's studio. I went back and got it. When I turned for the door again, I noticed a little slip of paper that had been under the coat, fall to the floor. I picked it up. I must have held it for a full minute before I realized what it meant. Just a small slip of paper, and yet... it made everything, the kidnapping, Carla, the murder, fall right into place. When I entered the living room at the house, one glance at Isabel and Bruce told me that she'd already knew about Skipper's death. Only Uncle Avery, who was not one to shed crocodile tears, hadn't changed. Ibarra, of course, was unhappy. Marlowe, we can't run any kind of a police department when every private detective acts like he's the commissioner himself. Why didn't you call me when this business first began to smell? You know better. I'm sorry, Ibarra, and I hate to sound immodest, but I happen to be one of the two men in this room who can name Bruce Gordon's kidnapper and Skipper Martin's killer. You know what you're saying, Marlowe? I think so. The man in the white Panama hat who kidnapped Bruce Gordon, Lieutenant, is Bruce Gordon himself. In other words, Bruce Gordon kidnapped Bruce Gordon. No, what? You're out of your mind, Marlo. Am I? Would you still say that, Gordon, if we paid a call to Carla Winters and asked her to hand over the $50,000 of so-called ransom money she's holding for you, too? Or would you stop, prefer... Stop, Gordon, stop her. The window, he Bruce! Marlowe, Bruce, who eventually planned to divorce Isabel and marry Carla Winters, wanted to have a little stake like $50,000 around first. That's right, Ibarra. But Skipper Martin knew about Bruce and Carla's plans to marry later, and he tried to blackmail them to pay off his gambling debts. That's why he came to Bruce's cottage on the sly. However, he got there just in time to see Bruce leave of his own free will, and therefore knew later that he couldn't have been kidnapped. Which gave him two holes over Bruce. That's right. But he made a mistake when he went to Carla's house and got too demanding. Because she told Bruce about it, and before he uh, released himself, he took care of Skipper. With four gunshots, to be exact. Charming people, aren't they, Barra? Lovely. Sometimes I think I should shoot higher and save the state a lot of money. And he almost got away with it. Uh, by the way, Marlowe, how do you know that Bruce was the man in the white Panama hat? Well, I was pretty certain, but I got my proof accidentally. Promise not to repeat this, Ibarra? Yeah. Well, I practically fell over a little slip of paper in his studio. It was a receipt from a department store, and it was made out to Bruce Gordon. For one Panama hat? Uh-huh. Nothing else but. Well, 
When I finally got back to my place on Franklin Avenue, the sun was already up. And the people who work at nice, sane jobs were beginning to fill the streets. I'd been on the go for a steady 24 hours, so I could think of nothing but my bed. I was about to put my key in the lock when a next-door neighbor walked by, bid me a cheery good morning, and started down the corridor. Now, that alone wouldn't have disturbed my sleep, but why... Why did he have to be wearing a white Panama hat? The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Featured in tonight's story were Jacqueline DeWitt as Isabel Gordon, Wilms Herbert as Uncle Avery Fairchild, Bill Lally as Bruce Gordon, Shep Menken as Skipper Martin, and Lou Krugman as Brock. Detective Lieutenant Abar is played by Jeff Corey. The special music was conceived and conducted by Richard O'Rant. <laughs> Be sure to be with us again next week at this same time when Philip Marlowe says... When her will was read, everybody figured she'd been crazy when she wrote it, and that included me. But I changed my mind after spending the night on an island with a pig, a cat, and an ape. Because in reality, they were people. Tonight, Amos and Andy return to the CBS network. And along with all their friends, Kingfish, Lightning, and Henry Van Porter, they're settling down for a permanent stay. Be listening for them later this evening over most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. They stood in the warm rays of the autumn sun while the wind played in the girl's hair. Oh, no, not that. Susie. Hello, Mr. Holliday. Oh, no, not what? I'm referring to the story I'm writing. Better forget the story, Mr. Holliday. I've got mail for you. So? What's new in Box 13? Box 13, starring Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. for Box 13, starring Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. Uh, let's see. Where was I? Oh. But Betty forgot her dignity as she fell and bumped her head against the tree which stood nearby. Oh, brother. Mr. Holliday. Uh, what's that, Susie? I said that maybe the mail from Box 13 might give you an idea. Today there were two letters. Two? Yes, mm-hmm. One of them is a big, fat envelope. 
Now, who in the world would send me a big, fat envelope? The police department. It's a block of tickets for their annual ball. What's the other one? Mmm, this one smells all romantic-like. It has the odor of Christmas night. Or, uh, maybe it's Easter morn. Or maybe it's Tuesday afternoon. Here, let's have it. If you will really do anything, what I have to ask is very, very little. Please meet me in North Park at 10 o'clock tonight. I'll be waiting at the bench near the entrance to the bridle path. Signed, Anonymous. It couldn't have been very romantic, Mr. Holliday. Oh, why not, Susie? I don't see stars in your eyes. Well, take another look, Susie. Tonight at 10 o'clock. Anonymous note. A rendezvous in the park at night. Well, I must admit it's better than the yarn I was riding. At least it's got a good start. The question is, what's the ending? Well, this is the park, and the clock says ten. There's the bench at the end of the bridle path. And that's all there is. Hey, wait a minute. Is that? No, it couldn't be. Little girl, sound asleep. Nobody else around. What's she doing out here alone this time of night? Little girl. Wake up, little girl. Wake up. Oh, I'm sorry. The gentleman came when I was supposed to stay awake. Now, what are you doing here? Waiting. But aren't you cold? No, I'm not cold. I have a nice new coat. See? Yes, it's very pretty. But for whom are you waiting? I'm waiting for the man. What man? He comes out of a box. It has a number. Oh, no. You don't mean box 13? Yes, that's it. How did you know? Because I'm the man. Oh, I'm so glad. You're nice. I like you lots. Well, thanks. Who told you about the man from box 13? One of my mothers. Mothers? You've got more than one. Of course, I got two. You're a very remarkable little girl. How do you happen to have two mothers? I don't know. It just happened, I guess. What's your name? Jamie. I mean, uh, what's your other name? I promised I wouldn't tell. Now, whom did you promise? My mother. Oh, your mother. Uh, the first one or the second one? The first one, naturally. Forgive me, I, I'm so stupid tonight. Where do you live, Janie? I got two homes, and I couldn't find either one. Mm, that's great. Look, Janie, what are you going to do? I'm going with you because I like you, and I promised I would. Mm, so that's it. Oh, no, you're not. I'm going to take you to the police station. My mother said you wouldn't. Why wouldn't I? My mother said you were a nice man who was smarter than any policeman ever was. Janie, flattery will get you nowhere. What flattery? That's something you've probably already learned from your mother. Now, do you know where you live? Sure, I live in the house. And do you know where the house is? Well, first you have to walk down this block to Jack Black's drugstore. Well, come on. And then we get to the drugstore, we turn left and walk a block. Oh, that's where you live? No, no, 
That's the corner where Johnson's toy shop is. Now, Janie. And then we turn right and go two blocks. <sighs> That's home. That's where the ice cream fire is. Now, stop that, Janie, and tell me how to get to your home. Well, you walk half a block up that street. That's home. Oh, that's your home. No, that's David's home. Hmm. So you're not going to tell me where you live, is that it? I think maybe you'd better look at my book first. It's grim fairy tales. Honey, they're not grim at all. They're nice. You want me to read to you? At ten o'clock at night? You know, young lady, it's way past your bedtime. No, no, I want you to read the letter that's in my book. Mommy said to tell you about it. Letter? Here, let me see uh-huh. that. Well, how do you like this? Please take care of my little Janie for me. I shall communicate with you in a little while. Let no one, even the police, take her away. Believe me when I say you're doing nothing illegal. Just helping out. Her mother. Hmm. I like your voice. What's your name? Dan. A sucker, if there ever was one. Well, this is not good. A small girl left in your care with no more authority than a letter. Suppose the woman who wrote this letter isn't Janie's real mother. Hmm. Then, Holiday, you're in trouble. But suppose she is the real mother. Why should she leave her child with a perfect stranger? Why? Well, there's only one thing to do. Take her to your apartment. Come on, Janie girl, let's go. Let's hope that the neighbors won't see you bringing home a little girl. Because that happens to be one item you don't win at a bingo game. Put her down on the couch, Holiday. That's it. Never knew a kid could have so much strength in her arms, did you? Uh, feels kind of good, too. Better get a blanket to put over. Better yet, stupid, put her in your bed. Well, Holiday, it looks like you're sleeping on the couch tonight. I wonder who she is and what this is all about. Hello? Dan Holiday? Yes? The man from Box 13? Yes? How's my little girl? Did you get home all right? How did you get my phone number? That's not important. How do you know who I am? Please, how is my little girl? She's asleep. Oh, thank heavens. I heard the bell ringing. Uh, she just woke up. Is she all right? She's fine, but... I'm in a fairy tale. Just a minute, honey. How long will it take you to get over here? Oh, I can't come over there now. I'm afraid to. Uh, lady, which mother are you? I don't understand you. She says she's got two. I'm her real mother. Well, then get over here and take her. I can't explain now, but please, Mr. Holliday, keep her just for a few days. A few days? And don't give her up to anyone, not even the police. Now, how do I know this is on the level? You don't. You'll just have to trust me. I promise you, you'll never regret it. I don't like any part of this, except Janie. You'll understand soon, Mr. Holliday. And remember, be very careful. Both Janie and you are in danger. All right, our holiday. How do you like this plot? A mother gives a little girl to a strange man, warning him not to give the child up to anyone. Not even the police. And then she admits there's danger. Uh, Janie. I broke your nail. I broke your nail. Oh, that's all right, baby. Are you hurt? I didn't mean to. 
I wanted my bed to poop. No, don't cry, honey. That was a nasty old lamp anyway. All it did was throw off a lot of light. No, Janie. My daddy went away when I was a baby. Why can't you be my daddy? It's getting late, honey. Aren't you sleepy? Not anymore. Read me a fairy tale, Daddy. In the morning, Janie. Now, you'd better get to bed. Have you got a doll? No, I'm sorry. No doll. Daddy Bear? No teddy bear. You must be awful lonesome. Maybe you've got something there, little lady. Daddy? Hmm? Tell me a fairy story. All right, honey. Let's see now. Once upon a time, there were three bears. The papa bear, the mama bear, and, and the... the baby ba- bear. I know that story. Hmm. Okay, uh, let's see. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Red Riding Hood. And, and the... the wolf ate up her grandmother. I know that one, too. Uh, Janie, maybe you should tell me the stories. Oh, let's see. Once upon a time, there was a boy named Jack who planted a bean seed. And it grew up into a mighty tall vine. And, and he, he climbed into the sky and killed a bad giant. I know that one, too. Saved by the bell. Hello, Holiday. Oh, Lieutenant Kling. Holiday, you're in a jam. Lieutenant Kling of the police department doesn't drop in on people unless there's trouble. Watch your step, boy. Well, aren't you going to ask me in? Oh, uh, sure, sure. Come in, Lieutenant. That's better. Uh, anything wrong? That's what I dropped in to find out. When you stay out of the department's hair for more than two weeks, I begin to worry. Hmm. Haven't been doing a thing, Lieutenant. Not a thing. Besides, I want to know if you got those tickets to the ball. Hello. <laughs> well, what's this? A little girl. Oh, thanks, Holiday. Uh, what's your name, young lady? Vicky. Uh, uh, Vicky Preston. Oh, no, it isn't. It isn't? Uh, Holiday. Great little kid. Her dandy sense of humor likes to pretend she's somebody uh, else. <laughs> all children do. Who is he, Daddy? Daddy? Holiday, my boy. See what I mean? Who is he, Daddy? He's a cop. A policeman, honey. Lieutenant Kling. Oh, I like policemen. And I like little girls. Got two of them myself. Is the riding business slow these days, Holiday? How do you mean? Oh, I thought you might be picking up a few bucks babysitting. Oh, oh yes, just helping out a friend. I could use you sometime. My wife and I like to get out every now and then. What's your price to sit with my kids? That depends. Uh, are your children anything like you? Now, Holiday. Oh, I'm just asking, just asking. Glad to accommodate any time. Yep, see you around, Holiday. Yeah, I'll see you. Your hand is shaking. Never mind, Jane. It's time you went to sleep. There's something about a kid asleep. Maybe I'm glad this happened. Got to use more kids in my stories after this. You know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have one around all the time. What am I saying? Now what? Lay off, you'll wake the kid. You Dan Holiday? 
Yeah, that's right. I'd like to come inside and talk with you. If you don't mind, I'd rather talk out in the doorway. Very well, I'll, I'll be direct. You have a little girl here named Janie, about five years old. Why? My name is Sam Parker. Does that mean anything? No. I've got a letter here authorizing me to take the little girl away. You're her father? Read the letter, then hand over the child. No. Very well, I'll call the police. I wish you would. Got to use the phone down the hall. I'm sorry about this. But get inside then. Keep your hands over your head. Put down that gun. What do you think you're pulling? Oh, shut up and get inside. Oh, there she is. Put down that gun, I said. He comes with me, Holiday. Let's keep those hands high. And I said you're staying here. Move over to that wall. Stay away from her, I said. One more move and you think so. Harry! Harry, help! Hit him with the gun, Harry, now! I got him. <laughs> You are listening to Box 13, starring Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. Box 13, starring Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. Nice going, Holiday. Very nice. You advertise in the newspaper for adventure and you get a little girl. Then you lose her to a man with a gun. You don't even know the mother's name or where she is. Now what? Mr. Holliday, I'm Wanda Parker, Janie's mother. Is she all right? You're the woman who called me on the phone? Yes. My baby, where is she? You're a fine one to be asking that after you leave her alone on the park bench. I was there hiding. I saw you take... Where is she? You shouldn't have let her go in the first place. Mr. Holliday, where is she? She's not here. Not here? What have you done with my daughter? You're her real mother? Of course I am. Where is she? What's happened? A man came in. And you let him take the child? I'm sorry. There was nothing I could do. He had a friend and a gun. They knocked me out. When I came to, Janie was gone. This, this man, did he have black hair and very thick eyebrows? Yes, he said his name was Parker. Oh, no. No, it couldn't be. Mr. Holliday, we've got to get her back right away. Before I do anything, you're going to tell me a few things. Then we'll decide. Who's that? I don't know. Right now, I wouldn't even care to guess. Is there a back door? Can I get out without being seen? Yeah, through the kitchen. There's a door leads out into the hall. What are you afraid of? Holliday, open the door. Do you know who that is? Yes, a police officer, Lieutenant Kling. I mustn't see him. I'll call you later. All right, all right, I'm coming. What took you so long to open the door? Uh, can't a man get some sleep? With your shoes on? My feet are cold. Get inside. All right, Miss Hatton. Are you sure this is the man, Lieutenant? Do you think he could have taken Janie away? I'm not sure of anything, but what you told me, he's just the type that could dream up a little nightmare like this. Lieutenant, mind telling me what this is all about? Uh, I'm Mrs. Hatton, and I'm Janie's mother. I want her right this minute. Janie's mother? You're Janie's mother? Lieutenant Kling, if this man has my little Janie, make him give her up right this minute. Come on, Holiday, where is she? Or who? You know what I want, that little girl you had here half an hour ago. Janie Parker. Me? I had a little girl? Up here? Holiday. Yes, Lieutenant? I came up here to see you. I was worried about you. I didn't know how right I was. And I appreciated your interest. Shut up. When I came up here, there was a little girl around. Now, where is she? Kling, you have my word. I, I don't know. 
Maybe you can remember down at headquarters. I can't remember something I didn't know in the first place. He doesn't look like the type who would have taken Janie. Oh, thank you. Now, Mrs. Hatton, if you'd tell me what this is all about, maybe I could help you. My little girl disappeared tonight. I was frantic. I called the police. I got the report right after I got here to see you, Holiday. From the description, I'd say you had Janie Parker right here. But you're not sure. Maybe you'd like to prove to me where you got the little girl I saw up here, eh? Come on, come on, tell me. Lieutenant, you'd never believe me. And where is that little girl now? Can you tell me that? No, I can't. But suppose I produced the girl and you found out it wasn't the same one. Holiday, what are you driving at? I just want a chance to produce the girl. How about it, Kling? I think you're pulling another one of your fast shenanigans. I ought to lock you up. But I'm inclined to give you a chance. What kind of a chance? I'm giving you three hours to find that little girl. Three hours? Then I'll be back, Holiday. So don't try anything funny. Lieutenant, at the moment, I have practically no sense of humor left. At least you're not in jail, Holiday. The good lieutenant walked out with Mrs. Hatton. You're as free as a bird on the wing for three hours. If you were as smart as that bird, you'd wing out of town until this blows over. Mr. Holiday. You. They've gone. You've been listening? Yes, at the kitchen door. Now, look, if you're Janie's mother and Mrs. Hatton is Janie's Mr. mother... Mr. Holiday, there's no time to explain. Wait a minute. Then who is Sam Parker? He's not Sam Parker. He's... He's Sam Clark. Oh, I see. Because Janie has two mothers, Sam Parker turns out to be Sam Clark... What are you giving me? I can clear up the whole thing, but we've got to get Janie away from Sam Clark first. Otherwise, I may never see her again. How do you go about finding a man named Sam Clark in a city this size? He doesn't live here, but I heard he drove his car down. That means he's probably staying at Brown's Motel. Uh-huh. I think I'll drop out and pay him a visit. I'll go with you. No, no, I don't think that's wise. I'm going alone. But Mr. Holliday... He carries a gun. You stay here. You'll get her. You'll bring Janie back. I'll try my best. I'll be waiting. After that, I'll spend a quiet weekend with a psychiatrist. This is it. Brown's Motel. Now to find a man named Sam Clark or Sam Parker. Ask the manager. That's logical. So he is here. Well, what do you do now, Holiday? You knock on the door, Sam Clark will stick a gun in your ribs. There'll be a fight, and Janie might get hurt. The telephone. That's how to do it. Remember to thank the man who invented outdoor phone booths. There. There it is. Brown's Motel. This is one time you'd better be right, Holiday. Because if you're wrong, you're dead. And that's so permanent. Brown's Motel. I want to speak to Mr. Clark. I don't know. He, he said he didn't want to be disturbed. It's a matter of life and death. Get him to the phone. Uh, who is this? Hurry, man. I've only got a couple of minutes. Okay, I'll see. Now, quick, Holiday. Out of the booth and around the corner towards the back. Wait. Now. Take it easy. Here he comes. Now, Holiday, just step around to the side of the booth where you won't be seen. Hello? 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 What kind of gag is this? No gag at all, Mr. Clark. Oh! That'll take care of him long enough for me to straighten this all out. 
want you to tell me the truth. You know what the truth is? Of course I do, Daddy. And tell me quickly, that man who brought you here, is he your real daddy? Oh, no. He's not my real daddy. Besides, I don't like him. Well, come on, Janie. We're getting out of here right now. I hope that's Lieutenant Kling and Mrs. Hatton. So, Holiday, you brought her back. Yeah, I, I brought her back. Oh, Janie, my baby. Mommy! Oh, I thought I'd lost you. I thought I'd never see you again. Mr. Holiday, I saw these people come in. Did you... Janie. Mommy! Janie. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What is this? These are my two mommies. Holiday, would you mind explaining this little two-mother soiree you've cooked up? Lieutenant, I think you'd better listen to what Mrs. Parker has to say. I'd like to listen to anyone who can make sense out of this highly confusing little situation. Anyone but you, Holiday. Thanks. Go on, Mrs. Parker. She's Janie's mother. Well, then, who are you, Mrs. Hatton? Kling, let Mrs. Parker explain, will you? Yes, please do, Mrs. Parker. My husband's been dead for some time. I've been working out of town so I could take care of Janie. I placed her in a foundling home for the year I'd be gone. And I'm a foster mother, Lieutenant. The foundling home paid me to take care of Janie. But you two have never met, eh? That's right, Kling. Is it beginning to make sense? No. If neither of these two ladies had the child, who did? A man. Named Sam Parker, who turned out to be Sam Clark. Holiday, will you cut that out? Sam Clark is my husband's cousin. He's been trying to take Janie away from me legally. That bothers me, Mrs. Parker. Why would he do that? Because there's an inheritance coming to her from her grandparents. He hopes to prove me negligent and get her custody. That way he can control the estate. That's where I came. You see, I took Janie from Mrs. Hatton's house. I wanted to hide her. I read Mr. Holiday's ad. I gave her to him. You gave her a child, a holiday? Oh, lady, you didn't know what you were doing. No, no, just to keep until it was safe, until I could get matters straightened out with the court. Well, now I'm beginning to see the light. Uh, you satisfied, Mrs. Hatton? Of course. I'd never try to keep Janie from her mother. Mm, thank heaven for that. So I guess it's all wound up, eh, Holiday? Oh, no. Not yet. There's more. Holiday, if you've got one more ramification up that sleeve of yours... I could hardly get Sam Clark up my sleeve. But I've got a hunch he should be here any minute. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Answer that door, Holiday. I'd suggest a gun in your hand, Lieutenant. A gun? What for? Oh, don't ask silly questions. Come in, Mr. Clark. Get your hands up. We've got something to settle. Meet Lieutenant Kling of the police department. What? No. Oh. <laughs> That's a nice right you've got, Holiday. Uh, pick up his gun. Thanks, Lieutenant. It's a pleasure. Mr. Holiday, how can I ever thank you? Very easily. Just bring little Janie up to see me occasionally. I certainly shall. Oh, by the way, I have a suggestion for you two ladies. I think I know how you can both keep Janie. But how? What do you mean, Mr. Holiday? Suppose you, Mrs. Parker, continue with your work. Janie could stay at Mrs. Hatton's, and so could you. Oh, Mrs. Parker, if you only would. I think that's simply wonderful. Mommy. Yes? He fixed it so I can see my two mommies, didn't he? Yes, he did, darling. And would you be my real daddy? Well, now, Janie, you see, it's like this. I... <laughs> Let's see you get out of that holiday. <laughs> and would you tell me a fairy story? Oh, no, you don't catch me on that one. I'll write you one. Mr. Holiday, I think you ought to know that... 
Oh, what a cute little girl. Who are you, little girl? I'm Jamie, and this is my daddy. Why, Mr. Holliday, you never told me. Now, look, Susie, Janie means I'm her daddy. Well, just sort of imaginary. What's imaginary about being a father? Sit down, Susie. I'll tell you all about it. I'm going to tell you a story. Boy, oh boy. I'll bet this is going to be good. Next week, same time, Alan Ladd stars as Dan Holliday in Box 13. Alan Ladd appears through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures and may currently be seen in Wild Harvest. Box 13 is written and directed by Ted Hediger. Original music is composed and conducted by Rudy Schrager. The part of Susie is played by Sylvia Picker. This is a Mayfair production. Proceeding has been... Radio Productions.